Our Father and our God, the worship that we have experienced this morning has turned our gaze heavenward. And we pray that we might see you in all your glory this morning. That we might be able to experience your truth and your holiness, your righteousness and your justice, your love and mercy and grace. Thank you for loving us so much that you send your son to this earth to be our savior, to be our shepherd, to be our friend. And I pray that each one of us will be able to confess that we have turned from our sin. We have asked Christ to forgive us and to save us. And we have experienced the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. We are new creatures in Christ for the glory of God. So open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things out of your law. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Sometimes I find it interesting to look at license plates and their meanings. Uh, maybe you've noticed my wife's license plate. It says K-Gang on it. Uh, we went for K-Team, but that was already taken. And the reason why we have the license plate K-Gang is because our five daughters have a name that begins with the letter K. So she is the leader of the K-Gang. Here's another license plate that I find rather interesting. Uh, I've seen this in several different states. We, two, are one. I don't have it on the back screen. Didn't know you had it here. Good. That's it. We, two, are one. Now, I think that this was written initially for a husband and wife. We, two, are one. Pretty clever, isn't it? But it seems to depict what the Apostle Paul is trying to get after in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2. So let me encourage you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2 and to see what we too are one really means. Catherine read to us the portion of scripture that is the latter half of Ephesians chapter 2 beginning with verse 11. We've read that several Sundays now and that is intentional. We haven't forgotten what we read last week. We're, we believe line upon line and precept upon precept in some of the Sometimes the best way for us to learn is to hear the same thing over and over with spaced repetition. So again, we hear this scripture that talks about the warring factions of Jew and Gentile being separated. Verse 11, you Gentiles were uncircumcised and the Jews were the circumcised and, and you were excluded from citizen, citizenship in Israel. You were foreigners to the covenants of promise. You were separated from Christ, verse 14. But Christ is now our peace, and he has made the two one. There it is. We too, Jew and Gentile, are now one in Christ. He's destroyed the barrier. He's abolished it in his flesh, all the condemnation of the law and the requirements that we could not fulfill. His purpose was, verse 15, to create in himself one new man or humanity, one new society out of the two, thus creating peace. Verse 17, he came and preached peace to you who are far away 
and peace to those who were near. That is, the message of the gospel of Christ, which results in peace, is preached to all of those who are far away and even to those who might be close, the Jews who were nearby. Verse 18, for through Christ, through him, we both have, Jew and Gentile, access to the Father by the Holy Spirit. And what I find fascinating is that when the Apostle Paul wants to talk about the two becoming one in society, the fusing together of two warring factions into one harmonious body in Christ, he uses an amazing illustration. What is it? Verse 18, the Trinity. The Trinity is one of the greatest examples of unity. Not that, that there was any disagreement or war between the members of the Trinity, but if you want to talk about unity, this is a great place to start. Where the triune God is in perfect harmony and that God who is one is three. So we have to change the license plate. We three are one. You say, that's confusing. You're right on. This is serious theological lumber to carry. In fact, it's impossible to comprehend. This whole issue about the Trinity is indeed unfathomable. It's incomprehensible. God is finite. God is infinite. We are finite. And it's impossible to squeeze infinity into a limited space. This doctrine of the Trinity is something we can't expect to easily understand. In fact, the Trinity, the word, is not found in Scripture. We get it from the Latin word trinitas, which means threeness. There's a threeness about Almighty God. C.S. Lewis once said, reality is not neat and obvious. In fact, it's often what you would not expect. And that is true when talking about the Trinity. So this whole doctrine of the Trinity is complex. It's confusing. It's, uh, it it kind of blows your mind when you're trying to think about it. It's inexplicable. So let me explain it to you. Well, my attempt in 30 minutes, I'm sure, will not be successful. But I do want us to approach this subject, taken from Ephesians chapter 2, because I believe there are amazing benefits when we know God accurately and we respond to him humbly. James Montgomery Boyce said, the only thing we know about God is revealed in the scripture. The only thing we know about the Trinity is revealed in the Bible, and even then, we don't know it well. We know a little bit, but we can only go so far. So first of all, let's admit that explanations about the Trinity are difficult. Yea, nigh impossible. It's a mystery that will never be solved this side of glory. People have tried to explain the Trinity by using analogies like water. Water is one sub substance, but it can be liquid or it can be hard like ice or it can be vaporized in steam. And yet that analogy falls apart because when it is one, it is not the other. 
Or some have said the Trinity is like an apple. You've got the skin and you've got the flesh and you've got the seeds, but it's one apple. Again, helpful to some degree, but it falls apart when we analyze it in any deep sense. And yet the Bible is filled with hints and clear references to the fact that God is one and God is three. Let's start out with the oneness of God in that famous text in Deuteronomy 6. And I'll give you most of the references on the screen today because we're going to be moving rather quickly and you need to gird up the loins of your minds and move with me fast. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That is truth and our responsibility then is to love the Lord with all your heart and soul and strength. This indeed was Israel's declaration. This was their creed. This is what they believed. They were monotheistic only, one God. But I find it interesting to note that the word one, eclad in the Hebrew, is never one in stark isolation. But it's like one cluster of grapes. There's a one to the grouping of it, but there is a fullness in the oneness. But indeed, our God is one. God is a living, personal spirit. He's living, which means alive and active. He is personal, which means he's not merely energy. He's not merely impact. He's got character. And personality may be the best reference to give to God or personhood, although our definition of personality in America today leads us down the wrong track if we use it in a limited way referring to God. But he is a person and does indeed have personality. He's not merely energy or force. And he is spirit, which means he transcends all. There are no limitations He is a active, living, personal spirit. And this God is one. If you go to the New Testament, you'll see that this oneness is emphasized. Ephesians, once once we get to chapter 4 and verse 6, he talks about the fact that there is one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. The New Testament believes in this oneness. And in James chapter 2, you read these words, you believe that there is one God? Good. Now you are a Christian. (laughs) No, the rest of it says, well, so far you are just on level with the demons. The demons believe that and tremble. Now it's establishing the fact that God is one. That's good. That's good theology. But you have to do more than just acknowledge the truth. You have to commit yourself to the truth. But I want you to note that the New Testament says, indeed, that God Almighty is one. So maybe a good way to look at it is this fact that monotheism teaches that there is one God. Polytheism teaches that there are many gods. Take uh, the Hindus, for instance, with their many gods. Tritheism, which we are sometimes accused of believing in, believes that there are three gods, but that's wrong. And modalism 
believes that there is only one God who acts in three modes. And that is wrong because it denies the three persons of the Trinity. Confused yet? Good. Here's a creed that comes from the 8th century that I think explains it as well as it can be explained, but doesn't eliminate the mystery. We worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance, neither eliminating the threeness nor dividing the oneness, the substance. So John Calvin used to love to talk about the one God who subsists in three persons. Any way we try to describe it, it leaves us short, but that's okay. Because imagine if you could explain God perfectly. What kind of God do you think you'd have? If you told me, I know everything there is to know about the Bible and God, then I would think that your God and your Bible indeed are limited. But when you admit, I can go only so far, the the things that God has revealed to us we can know, but the mysterious things that he keeps back we can never know, and this indeed is one of those areas of mystery. Jehovah, Father, Spirit, Son, mysterious Godhead, three in one. That's the teaching of the scripture, the oneness of God, yet the threeness of God. And trying to explain it is well nigh impossible. But let's go on to the fact that indeed this doctrine is biblical. That is, the scriptures are filled with all kinds of examples And these examples are vital for us to be aware of. Since the word Trinity is not used, the examples then force us to come to a biblical conclusion. If the Bible clearly says that God the Father is God, and most people don't have a problem with that, and that Jesus Christ is God incarnate, God the Son, and there are few people like Jehovah Witnesses who have a problem with that, But then the Bible also tells us that God the Spirit is God as well, sharing the exact same nature, although being different persons. Why, we just simply have to embrace the mystery and believe the truth. Let's look at a few examples. First of all, Genesis chapter 1 in the original creation account. In the beginning, and I like that God starts there, even with the idea of the Trinity. In the beginning, God referring to the Father, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said. Yeah, you probably wouldn't catch it the first time around, and you need the revelation of the New Testament to understand what is being said here in the Old Testament, but you've got the Father creating, and the Spirit creating, and the Son creating, and you can go to other portions of the Scripture that clearly tell us that Jesus created all things, and all things were created by the Spirit, by His power. Jesus is the Word of God, and so I think this might be an emphasis or an implication of Christ's at creation. Or how about Genesis 1, verse 26? You know this verse well. 
God said, let us make man in our image. The oneness of the true God expresses himself by this plurality. Let us. You see, God was never lonely before he created man because he is tri-unity. There was fellowship among the Godhead. Or how about this? Genesis chapter 11, the story of the Tower of Babel. Let us go down and confuse their languages. Let us respond. And then that wonderful text of Scripture in Isaiah chapter 6. Remember when Isaiah lifted up his eyes and saw the, the Lord in the temple? His train filled the temple. The doors were shaking. And the seraphim were crying what? We sang it a moment ago. Holy Holy, holy. Why is it repeated three times? I think because of the Trinity. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And then later on in the text in verse 8, the Lord says, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Here again, this same concept mentioned. And we could find other examples in the Old Testament that are hints to this triunity of God. But the Old Testament anticipates the fuller teaching of the New Testament. So we go to Mark's gospel, now following along chronologically in the story of Christ. When Jesus is baptized, Mark 1 says, Jesus was coming up out of the water. He saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. Who is that? the father because he says you are my son in whom I am well pleased there's the trinity at the commissioning service of Jesus the father the son and the Holy Spirit we notice in John's gospel chapter 14 in that upper room discourse Jesus said to his disciples if you love me Jesus is talking You will obey what I command, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor or comforter to be with you, and he is called the Spirit of truth. There is Christ talking of the Father and also referring to the Comforter, the Holy Spirit. By the way, in the economy of the Godhead, there is perfect unity in personhood, but there is different activity in the persons. Usually it's the father initiating and the son fulfilling and the spirit applying. That's a good way to remember the activity of the Holy Spirit. And then just before Jesus ascended, he gave a great commission. This is Matthew 28. Remember he said to go into all the world and make disciples of every nation? By the way, that is kind of a motto and theme verse for this church. If anyone asks you what South Church is about, Simply say this, we want to glorify the God of heaven by making disciples here on earth. If you can't remember all of that, just say making disciples because that's what Jesus said to do. Now, what is the first thing that you have to do in making a disciple? They have to come to faith in Christ. That's where it starts. That's the first step in discipleship. And when they come to faith in Christ, that's when they are baptized. Baptized in what name Singular, it is the name of the Father and Son and Spirit. Well, that would be blasphemy 
if they were not of equal importance and character. So we are being baptized in the name of the triune God. And then you go all the way to the end of the book of the Revelation, and I'm skipping over so many instances. We'll see a few more. But in Revelation chapter 1, here it is again, the Trinity. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. By the way, that sounds a little bit like our doxology that we just sang a moment ago. The one who is and who was and who is to come is God the Father. But later on in the book of the Revelation, this same phrase is given to Jesus the Son, right? Of whom John said in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. there's, There's no confusion there. And so... John, in his revelation, talks about the creator, the one who was, who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne. Commonly, with the imagery of the book of the Revelation, this refers to the Holy Spirit with his ability to go everywhere, as seven is a perfect number, covering the entire earth. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead. There it is, the Father, the Spirit, and the Son. So when you go throughout the scripture, it just indeed is amazing to see example over example, and we've only scratched the surface. So the explanations are difficult, the examples are prevalent, but so what? which is a legitimate question to ask whenever you study the scriptures. Well, what impact should this have on me? Well, I want you to know that the effects of the Trinity upon your life are transforming. They're incredibly beneficial. They're magnificent. Your life can be amazingly transformed when you understand that God is three and you respond equally to all. John Stott, in his wonderful book called Evangelical Truth, writing near the end of his life, said, I want to write kind of a a last will and testament of what I truly believe. And he said, "Let let me put all of those core evangelical teachings in a Trinitarian structure. By the way, when we quoted the Apostles' Creed, did you notice the Trinitarian structure? Clearly there from the early part of the church. And John Stott said, remember the three R's. This is a good way to remember it. Revelation comes from the Father. He initiates all we know about him. He reveals himself to us in creation and reveals himself to us in the word. God takes the initiative. We love him because he first loved us. And then Christ, that's redemption. Christ is the one who came, God incarnate, to die for our sins. The only way an eternal atonement could be made would be if God himself did it, and he does it in Christ. And then the last R is the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. That is, the Holy Spirit comes in and makes us new creatures in Christ and 
transforms us, not by works which we have done, but by God's mercy. And so here's the Trinity in revelation, in redemption, and regeneration. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit seems to cover it all. Now, we have been swimming in the deep end of the theological pool, and some of us are drowning, so what in the world do we do with all of this? Please go to the book of Ephesians if you're not there, and I'm going to limit our application this morning to the book of Ephesians merely because of time. This will not exhaust the application of this wonderful truth to our souls, but it will be a start. Look at Ephesians 1.17. By the way, the Trinity is inferred to at least seven, maybe eight times in the book of Ephesians. This is the air Paul breathed. Constantly thinking of the Trinity. For instance, chapter 1, verse 17, Paul says, I keep asking that the God, there's the Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ, he's called the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you might know him better. I think the lack of the knowledge of God has called, caused so many problems in our churches today and a recovery of the knowledge of God that is understanding him as clearly as we can, as he is. A proper knowledge of God will go a long way toward curing the problems in our life and in our church. So, you want to know God? You must know him as Father, Son, and Spirit. That's what Paul's saying, and I pray that this will happen in your life. And that's why the Apostle Paul spent so much time in the early part of chapter 1. Now go back to verse 3 of chapter 1. Here's the Trinity in verse 3. Praise be to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every blessing of the Spirit, which is a legitimate way to translate verse 3, not just spiritual blessings, but every blessing that proceeds from the Spirit. So it's praise to God who has blessed us and to Christ who has blessed us by the Holy Spirit with all of these blessings. So the second application or result or impact of knowing the Trinity is that you will be, get this, lost in wonder, love, and praise. Have you ever been lost in praise? Meditate on the early part of Ephesians. Remember, we said this is all one long sentence? So how many times does Paul mention to the praise of his glorious grace, verse six? And he mentions it several other times and ends with this idea to the praise of his glory, verse 14, understanding the Trinity. And by the way, those verses talk about the Father choosing us and the Son dying for us, and the Holy Spirit sealing us. There's the Trinity in this long sentence. Paul didn't want to stop anywhere to break his train of thought. And it's all about praise. Which leads me to say that if you're not a person of praise, you don't understand the Trinity. Okay, none of us understand it, but you're not appreciating the wonderful truth that has been revealed to you about the Trinity, because understanding who God is is going to humble your soul and lead you to praise. 
Look at chapter two, verse 18. Our text for this morning talks about access. We have access to the Father. We can go into the Father's presence, how? Based on what Jesus has done through Christ by the Spirit. So we are going to the Father on the death, and res- uh, death burial, resurrection of Christ, and it's the Holy Spirit who makes that a reality and causes it to happen. And this whole idea of access is prayer. Did you know you could not pray were it not for the triune God? The Holy Spirit helps us pray. We pray in Jesus' name. We pray as we enter into the presence of the Father, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. There's the Trinity in all of prayer. And to show that again, look at chapter three, verse 14. Paul says, for this reason I kneel before the Father, for whom this whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ might dwell in your hearts through faith. There it is, prayer to the Father through the power of the Holy Spirit so that Christ might live in your soul. You say, I thought it was the Holy Spirit who lived in us. It is. But we're talking about the Trinity. And so sometimes it's referred to as the Spirit and sometimes referred to as Jesus the Son. So I would say the same thing again. If you're not praying as you should, maybe it's because you don't appreciate what the triune God has done on your behalf. Or how about chapter 2? This idea of humility. Be completely humble and gentle. It talked about walking living a life worthy of the calling that you've received, verse one, be completely humble. We'll get to this in the future, but uh, this is a reference to the fact that an understanding of the Trinity produces humility. The true glory of God perceived destroys the vain glory of man. If you're a selfish person, get into the Trinity and you'll lose yourself. That's a pretty good application because selfishness is sin. My greatest problem is me. It's not the devil outside of me. It's the me in me. And I need the Trinity to humble me. And then unity. That's chapter four, verse three through six. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. How can I do that? Well, there's one body and one spirit. There's verse five, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. There it is. The unity of the Trinity is designed to help produce the unity in the body. And when we stop understanding the triune God, we stop experiencing unity among those who are in Christ. And then one final one, and I suppose this might be a bit of a stretch when you're talking about the Trinity, but chapter five. Verse one, be imitators of God as dearly loved children and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Jump down to verse 18. Don't get drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. 
So separated from some verses, there you have the Trinity. But notice the Trinity is mentioned again. Verse 19, speak to one another with psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your hearts to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of Christ. When you are filled with the Spirit, you're grateful to God in the name of Christ. And so the lack of gratitude (laughs) points out the fact that we don't appreciate the Holy Spirit as we should. Wow. Daniel Webster, who was a great politician in the early days of our country and stood for freedom and truth and a strong believer, was once asked, how can a man of your intellect, and he was brilliant, the genius, how can a man of your intellect believe in the Trinity? A man of your mental caliber believe that three equals one, someone asked him, And Daniel Webster's Webster's response was worth noting. He said, I do not pretend to fully understand the arithmetic of heaven yet. I don't understand the arithmetic of heaven. How can one plus one equal plus one equal one? Same thing in marriage. How can one plus one equal one? That's not the arithmetic of earth. That's the arithmetic of heaven itself. Well, we need to go out with a benediction, don't we? Look at 2 Corinthians. And this is one of the most beautiful expressions of the Trinity. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, this is one of the most divided churches in all the first century, the church at Corinth. They had all the gifts and all the problems. And Paul ends with a benediction. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Now those seem to be out of logical order, but they are in salvific sequence. They're showing you the order that we personally experience salvation. It's first the grace of God that comes to us. That's the basis, that's what touches our heart. And it's interesting, Paul starts all of his letters, grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's grace that touches us at first. And then we are introduced to the love of God. And then when that love is embraced, we experience this wonderful fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And it goes on and on and on. What an amazing thing to know that God is triune following the study of John Stott and his own personal experience, every morning he would pray a Trinitarian prayer that started with praise and then ended with request or prayer, actual prayer, praise and prayer. And it would go something like this. Good morning, Heavenly Father. Good morning, Lord Jesus. Good morning, Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, I praise you as the almighty, everlasting God of the universe. Lord Jesus, I worship you as God incarnate, Lord and Savior of the world. Holy Spirit, I worship you as the convictor and comforter and sanctifier of God's people. Glory be to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, who was and is and is to come.
Then he would go into his request. Heavenly Father, I pray that this day I might be conscious of your presence and learn to love you more and more, learn to please you more and more. Lord Jesus, I pray that this day I would take up my cross and follow you. Holy Spirit, I pray that this day you will fill me with yourself and cause your fruit to ripen in my life, the love, joy, peace, the patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Glorious, blessed, holy trinity, three persons in one God, have mercy on me today. And what a great way to start the day with a focus on the triune God whose blessings we've enumerated just in part in the book of Ephesians. I think this should end up in praise, don't you? Join me in singing that hymn we sang a moment ago. Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty Early in the morning our song shall rise to Thee. Holy, 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 merciful and mighty, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. Heavenly Father, we pray by your grace and by your mercy, you will make us more aware and cognizant of who you are in your threeness and your oneness. And may it work in our lives to change us so that we will be more unified and humble, more filled with praise and gratitude, more knowledgeable about who you are and more passionate about declaring your mercy, your grace, your love, and your fellowship to the world around us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You're dismissed. Amen.